bring Christian greetings to you this morning. Greet you in the name of our Lord. I don't know if it's your desire for the Lord to be made known this morning, but the Sunday school lesson was, I thought, a long ways off from Revelation until Mike said something about the Lord being made known. You want the Lord to be made known to you? He has been as a converted believer in Christ, but Book of Revelation, and, and pardon me, my thoughts get all mixed up sometimes. We're at each different stage in our lives, and, and you know, as there's older Christians here, longer than me, and they, they look for a, you know, a revealing of God in their lives, if nothing else, from the end times, when we have Revelation. But in our day-to-day interaction, we're not waiting for end times. We still want God to be made known in our lives. And I'm thankful that one day God will make himself known once and for all. And I say that because of the book of Revelation. But I'm also glad that, like I've heard, that God does make himself known in day-to-day things. And we can know that God is real. And that he is also here. He's with us. I better get started. Turn to chapter 6 of Revelation. And we'll attempt to go through chapter 7 as well. We're getting to uh, things that, you know, lots of discussion, opinions, like I said. But if you paid attention, the last chapter we had was 4. And we're skipping five. I would like to look at chapter five when we have communion. So don't think that we're overlooking it. It will come later. Um, we have communion coming up here November the 12th. So I'm saving chapter five for communion. So we're going to chapter six and chapter seven today. And I think we're going to read uh, at least chapter six at this time. I always feel there is, and I've experienced it where just the reading of scripture and as it said in the beginning in revelation about blessed is he that readeth and the ones that hear and i want to do that as we look at uh, chapter six here so let's read chapter six book of revelation and i saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and i heard as it were the noise of thunder one of the four beasts saying come and see And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. 
And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death and hell. Sorry, was death and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of, he of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So just to give a, a an in-between there of chapter 5, you know, where we're, uh, from chapter 4 we had, like, seeing the throne and where God um, is uh, dwelling, if you want to say, and then just to give introduction to what we're talking about here with the seals. So if you turn back to chapter 5, just we're going to look at what is in the right hand of this one that's sitting on the throne. So chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? So we leave that question hanging for later. Let's just go to chapter 6 where it begins the opening of these seals. And so just I'm going to go down verse by verse. I don't have much in by way of trying to explain these verses. But the things that uh, came to me I want to share with you as I looked at each one. So... He's beginning to open these seals up, and it says about thunder, and that is that initiative of, of God moving in a, in a uh, as we studied before, how thunder is a, uh, a powerful, an awe, uh, you, you just stand in awe of it, and it says, I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, uh, this beginning, this introduction, and one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Now, just to give you an introduction of these four seals, you have first beast, second beast, third beast, fourth beast, 
all opening first seal, second seal, third seal, fourth seal. I don't know the significance of that, but that's how it's held. There's more seals that follow, it's up through to seven, but that's what it is. But each of the beasts say, come and see. And that is a, an invitation for him that in, is, is like, you got to see what this is. You, you, it, it's a, a, a value. Like the, the invitation is given you, you come for John to, to come and see it. And so each time this is, this is given, as we will see. But the first uh, horse here is a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. You remember talking about, last time we talked about a crown, that wreath or that garland that was as a victory. And that's what this is again, about how this one that's riding on the horse, um, and in war you know of it, how they a, a bow was a very uh, uh, effective way of, of conquering, um, at least in their day anyway. And he was able to go forth this way. He was given victory. It says, went forth conquering and to conquer. Like, he had conquered and there was more to conquer and he will conquer. And that is who is on the white horse. Now go to verse 3. It says, he opened the second seal, heard the second beast say, come and see. And so verse 4, it says, and there went out a horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat on to take peace from the earth. And that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So, uh, I studied into sword a little bit. And it's interesting that there's, there's two Greek words for sword. One is like a big uh, sword that really does uh, a lot of um, destruction. And in this case, it is not that. A sword um, can also be, uh, and I don't know how to say the Greek word for it, but a smaller one like they use to do sacrifices. And that's what's actually given here. Um, even though it says a great sword, it's a little tricky on the word study, uh, it's still a smaller sword uh, used um, instead of in a, in a big way, it's just used, um, you know, in a small way as, as uh, you know, a person would use it in his individual things. But here it does say about it, um, destruction will come because of that. Uh, but nonetheless, that's, that's a little bit what is used um, when it says about the sword. And so verse 5, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld, lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. So black is not a good color. That's usually um, death, uh, destruction, very negative. But the, the, the it says, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. The old scale where he had a point in the middle and the, you know, went out and there was two things and you balanced out what was there. That's what, he, that's what it was, uh, John was seeing. And then go to verse 6. He said, and he heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. If you take your wages today, what you earn in one day, that's what they had back then, was a penny or a denarius. That was enough to buy food for one person for that day, for wheat anyway. If you were good, you could get three measures of barley. The word measure is simply a quart. So we see, and I don't know if it relates specifically to the balances, but the idea of famine, that food will be shortage and in high price. 
When you talk about you yourself working all day long for one quart of wheat, that is something we're not familiar with. That's what's given here by the by the uh, the third seal, the the black horse. Hard times. It does say though that see thou hurt not the oil and the wine, so it's not total famine, starvation. There's things there that are they have to continue to survive. But you talk about spending all your day's wages for simply one man's meal of wheat. That uh, sounds like difficult times. Verse 7, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth beast say, Come and see. Now, this is the last one for the horses coming. Let's, as we look into verse 8, it says, I looked and behold a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. If you study that, you get lots of ideas and opinions about that. But what the meaning of this word pale is that, and when they uh, said it, it, it just kind of makes sense in what we see around Halloween. If I tell you of that pale green deathly color, you can almost see it, I think, in your mind. You see on these houses, it's that ugly, repulsive, pale greenish color, and that's given in this word pale. Now, it doesn't say it in, in the King James, but you look up the, the, what that pale word means, and the idea of green comes through there. And we see that uh, through Halloween and the, just the horrible things that the culture does around us. Um, that is who this uh, rider was representing death. It says, And hell followed with him. It says, And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the field. There's four ways there that um, they were able to kill people. And here again, I don't know all the implications of what that might mean. But that's what it says in, in Scripture. So verse 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now here we see a little bit of what happens to somebody that's martyred for Christ. It says, under the altar, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Verse 10, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? It could look at face value that they were wanting revenge for what took place to them. And that's not really what uh, is implied here. They're saying, how long, O Lord, will it be till you judge the people? Not because of maybe what happened to us, but that you are going to, uh, your judgment is going to come and you will avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. It says in 11, And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. You could probably run away with verse 11 a little bit. But it implies that 
not enough people have died for the cause of Christ yet. It's told them you're just going to have to wait a little bit. They should rest for a little season until their fellow servants, I take that as you and I, and their brethren, because as brothers in Christ, as sisters in Christ, you are part of the body. And so it says, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed, a future, future ahead, as they were, until that is fulfilled. Now, I don't know where to put that on the timeline. And I don't know how to accept that. That God just wants more of his people to die for him yet. I don't understand that. The only thing we can hold to is that God knows what brings him honor and glory. And if he wants more people to die for his name, then he's going to say, I want this mount, and then we're done. And God can do that. And that we as brothers and sisters would be willing, if that would happen, to shed our blood. To be killed as they were. And some of that might come later too as we look at um, just a, a slight interpretation of what all this might mean. Verse 12, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth, sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. I, in this whole studying Revelation, want you to know that there is a lot more uh, concrete uh, studying that could be done to back up what's in the book of Rush by going to a lot of other scripture. You have Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you have Daniel, you have words of Jesus. And <clears throat> that looks to me like it makes my studies look even bigger. And so I haven't done much of that. But these were the words of Jesus, I think, if you were to look back. He talks about the end times, Jesus himself saying about maybe earthquake, about the sun becoming black and the moon becoming his blood. Don't know how all that will be. But I was uh, intrigued. And this, this must open our minds to possibilities of things. That it's not so much black and white. Because on May 19th of 1780, it was dark all day long. And it wasn't necessarily that the sun became black, like it says here. But it became dark enough that people were starting to wonder if this is from God. Now, I don't remember the reasons or what. I just skimmed it quick because I had to jump to the next one. <clears throat> Uh, and that's in verse 13. It says, And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. On November 15th, 1833, they say the sky fell. If you would have been awake, according to the article that I read back, and this is 1833, it didn't have much documentation. If you would have been awake at four in the morning and saw the heavens, you would have trembled. They said there was thousands of stars falling. And the people that saw it, you didn't know what was going to happen. You did not know what was going to take place. Well, after they 
research this and figure it out, every November there is an increase in meteorite activity. And that particular year was off the charts, if you want to say. Was that the end of the world? Was that the end? God came and it was done? No. Did the sky fall? Was there some things that... Uh, yes, there was. And so, taking that at times in the book of Revelation, there's, I think, a big overlap in a lot of these things that take place. In, in time frame, but also in how things... It's, it's eased into things that, you know... Might happen here a little bit, might give indication here a little bit, but it might not be the full extent of it. And I see that as God doing some things in nature that wake us up a little bit, but yet it's not the full fulfillment of Scripture yet. Continuing on, verse 14 it says, and as we know that, that says, and the heavens... And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Did you see that happen yet? No, I don't think we did. I don't think. Indications of it? No. But someday that will. When the sixth seal was opened, and all these basically uh, interpreted as in reading and understanding that this sixth seal represents the end of the world, the, the end times, as it were. Um, right before Jesus comes, because these people, um, and I'm kind of jumping into these next verses, it says, And the heavens departed as a scroll rolled together, every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and chief captains, and mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in dens and in rocks of the mountains. That's getting close to the end. Because they see the day of wrath coming, as it says. Uh, Sorry, 16. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. There again, I mean, your mind can go a couple different ways on that. But it's the people must know who this one is on the throne, and they want to avoid it, and they want to to ignore it. And they know that they can't get away from it. Now, how God can have that still in, put in people's minds, I don't know. Because verse 17 says, For the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? And it's as if all these people know that. And they can't... Uh, <clears throat> and I'm not sure I have it in my notes somewhere. But I guess at the end, I might say it now already while I'm thinking of it. It comes to me as I read Revelation, and all the people and all the, the, the judgments and the seals, the vials, the trumpets, there's a lot more things coming yet that I don't understand. That almost, I don't know if you could say every, every person on the face of this earth is going to know who God is. And they are going to deliberately choose opposition to God. They do not want anything to do with God. And now when I state that, then I jump to the next thing. And that's, that's it's, oh, okay, well, we're not quite to the end times when we know that. Because the gospel hasn't quite been preached yet to every tribe and every nation, every place in the world. 
It is getting close, I think, brothers, sisters. The technology is given that it is getting less and less of a tropical... Get my words mixed up here. The remotest place that you can go on the earth. The tribal people in China to wherever that are out in... They're out. They are receiving... The word of God, more and more as it goes. So what's going to happen when all of a sudden the gospel is proclaimed and preached to everyone here on earth? People are going to have to decide. They're going to follow the Lord or they're not going to follow the Lord. And it seems to me that the people are saying, in, in verse 17 here, I don't know where the time frame would be of, but they want to, that grudgingly, inner side of you that refuses to give up and you just re- and we experience it today brothers sisters we just can't quite give in to that thing that we just it just goes against us so bad that we'll do anything else but give in to that now it's not quite that bad with us but I think that's the way the minds and hearts of these people are that is the opposite of a servant, a follower of Jesus Christ. The surrendering, the giving in, the laying it all down. Jesus was a sacrifice. Why can't we? It's because of the battle that is there. And each of us have a choice what we're going to do with that. Let's keep on going chapter 7. I think I'm going to read chapter at this time. There's maybe not quite as much in 7. There's some repetition in here. But let's read chapter 7 of Revelation. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Aser were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephthalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, 
and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And I said, and he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So let's look down through these verses. Uh, if you go back to the beginning here in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And after these things... So there is a little bit of a problem here because there's seven seals, but only six of them had happened. And now it kind of changes to a different thing. So you're kind of holding the, the seventh seal on a, uh, you know, in between here. Um, didn't quite happen yet. And just says, after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the winds that they, that they blow it on, that they, that they don't hurt the earth or the sea. And there's interpretation that that means people and whether it's the earth itself or people, I don't know. But it says in verse 2 about another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Jump into verse 3 now. Saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I was sitting here this morning and thinking, I don't have enough study done on this sealing part. I should have studied it more. The, the, the little bit that I did was is when a king took his ring and he sealed it and he made it official. He said, yep, this is in and done and uh, that's the end of it. I said it. Here's my signet or some for term there. Um, it, it's in and done. You sealed, like you used to say, the law of the Medes and Persians. Like nothing can change it. It's, it's in and done. And that basically is what's taking place here with, with the sealing. So you, it says there about, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, I'm jumping ahead again here, but things come to my mind. As much as you talk about the mark of the beast and a mark being put you know, on your right hand or on your forehead, there is almost as much indication of the servants and the children of God having a mark or a sealing in their forehead I'm not sure about the right hand, but it's not just the Satan, the enemy that does the marking and putting a mark of the beast, if you want to say on it. God also puts his seal of approval of, um, and you get a little bit in, uh, you know, a little bit like, well, what does this sealing mean? Is this like today you can't sin, you can't uh, uh, fall away from the grace of God, you know, once saved, always saved. I'm not quite so sure of that. I I would tend to think this is more closer to the end times when God has his chosen people and the numbers have been given and God says, here they are, here is my number of sealed people, this is how far it went to whatever men choose and God chooses now to say, 
We're sealing them. And that is where we get the number 144,000, and then you get into all kinds of things. So what's 144,000? I didn't study a whole lot in that. What I did find out was is that there is 12,000 from each tribe. Equal amounts. It didn't have to do with whether a tribe was big or small. The same amount was, came from each, each tribe. That allows for fluctuation, for irregularities, which I believe is the way it is. Do we know who the children of God really are today? Oh, it's so many from over here, so many from here, so many from here. Yep, these are the people. God's the one that knows the hearts of people on earth, and I think he's the only one that knows how many 144,000 are really going to be. And so if you look at these verses from 5 down to 8, it gives the names of the tribes and a number of 12,000 given to each of them. So we're not going to go down through those. We're going to jump down to verse 9. And it switches again to a different scene. And it, it says here in verse 9, And after this I beheld and lo a great multitude. So now he's seeing um, an innumerable group of people. And they stood before the throne. And I take this throne to go all the way back to the first time that it talks of a throne where we saw the appearance of this one sitting on the throne. And any time that refers to throne, I take it to go back to that one and only throne, one and only true, holy, righteous God sitting on that throne. And these people are once again given here as every tongue and tribe and nation, an innumerable crowd, before that throne and before the Lamb as well. I kind of missed the chapter 5 where the Lamb goes before the throne to open the, open the book, but... We'll uh, try to get that later. And it says, They're clothed in white robes and palms in their hands, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. It's hard not to know whether to reread these just to know what's going on. But the, these people were, and you have it from 10 uh, in 11 there, the angels were around the throne, the elders, um, talks about the four beasts, and they were worshiping God. And in verse 12 is uh, what they were saying. And I just want to put a little... Uh, sometimes it's fun being a school teacher and teaching something new. I, I enjoy that. problem is I don't think I have very many things new to teach you. But here's one that I didn't know. Maybe you didn't know either. So in verse 12, it's not really having to do with Revelation, but it's just what's given here. In verse 12 it says, saying, Amen. And then it says, blessing and glory, etc., forever and ever, amen. We have amens two times. How many of you know what amen really means? Raise your hand. There's a couple different meanings, and you kind of know. I always grew up, it's like, let it be. You, you say amen to join your prayer, this is what you mean, and that, that is correct. But, in my Thanks to technology, you can do a couple clicks and find out where all these words are used. And <clears throat> news for me, when Jesus used the words, verily, verily, I say unto you, he was saying, amen, amen. That is the same Greek word. And it's one of affirming and confirming that what I'm saying is true. And I told my wife, I said, well, yeah, that makes sense all the time. 
except none of you are saying amen to what I preach sometimes, so I'm not quite sure. But when you're in a group and you hear somebody say something and you agree with it, what do you say? Amen. You say, yes, that's right. And so this is one of the, or if only times, that the word amen is used in the beginning of a statement. But it's just re-emphasizing due to the situation, the, the, I mean, the, what we have here of these people before God. They say, these things are true. Amen. And then they give blessing and glory and wisdom, etc. And they get you know, down to the end uh, forever and ever. And they say, amen again. And so whenever you see verily, verily in the King James, you could put amen, amen in there. I know it seems a little odd, but that is the way it is. And if you read it in the NIV, I think it says truly, truly. That's, that's all part of this amen word. All right, that's your little side note out of what I got from verse 12 here, why it says amen in the beginning. But God is being worshipped, and they just say amen. They confirm it. They're it's, it's, it's the words faithful and true also came out in the definition of amen. Now, verse 13, it says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, uh, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And in 14 it says, I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And then it says, And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That gets us into um, that big, complicated word called tribulation and how all that can be put in the end times. I don't really know, but intriguing to me, just, just me here, and the King James says, out of great tribulation. Now, I know I talk about Greek a lot, but the word the in Greek is very, very important. It, and if you would read that different, that would make sense to you. It says, they came out of great tribulation. That kind of leaves it open-ended. But if I read it to you this way and says, they came out of the great tribulation, is there a difference? Well, sure there is. It's specifically, we had it in our lesson. I don't have the book today. But the last verse, it says, he is the, either Lord or God. I forget which way it is. It has the in there. It doesn't say he is God. He is the God. And it puts a heavier weight on it. It doesn't say the great tribulation here. But it could be applied. I'm not quite sure where to go with the great tribulation, how that will be. Just don't, I don't understand it, don't know. Um, but anyway, if you're wondering about great tribulation, um, I think there will be greater hardships, times coming. I'll let you choose if you want to be considered one that's here, whether the rapture takes place and you're out of here, or if you'll be on earth when the, all these tribulations take place. There's lots of variance and opinions in that. But nonetheless, we can come out of great tribulation, whether it's spiritual, physical, and we can have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's what they, John saw here and. If we aren't now, we have the promise. If we choose to continue to follow Christ, we can be one of them. We can be in white, standing before the throne, praising God with what is said here. And in 15, Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. 
I'll just read 17 and 18 again. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This, as you know growing up, most of you probably, this is what we think of as the end. This is heaven. No more hunger, no more thirst. When it says about the sun lighting on them, the sun is not going to beat down on you anymore. I don't know if it means the sun disappeared. Here it doesn't say it. Later on it says there's no sun. But here it just says the sun's not going to be so hot. It says nor any heat. And in verse 17 it just says about the lamb will feed us, um, lead you to living waters, and God's going to take tears from your eyes. When we hear that God's taking away tears, in my mind, that, hey, we made it. We're at the end. So taking that, I don't know, is this, this pretty much kind of giving the end of, uh, you know, a Christian's life right here already in verse 7 or chapter 7? Uh, let you kind of study for yourself. I don't, I don't necessarily know. One thing I do know is that it's, it is eternal things. And it says, the lamb shall feed them and lead them to living waters. But God, not the lamb, will wipe away tears from their eyes. Now, I know the Trinity is the same, but it does put a difference. God takes away the tears, it says here. But the lamb's the one that's going to provide and feed for us. Um, whether that's in a, in a physical sense or not, I don't really know. So we made it through those chapters. I don't know if you would tend to understand them any better or not, but that's just the introduction of the words. Now, I can go to my next set of uh, notes here, and we can go for another half hour, which I don't know. I will try to pick out really quick just to get your interest into how you would interpret these and what you would think of these when you read this. So back up to chapter 6. Look at these four horses. Do you think they represent something? Yes, they represent something. But what? We don't know. There's some ideas out there, and you may be able to uh, identify with one of them. The, probably the most um, one that makes as much sense of any, I would say, and yet not, depends how you, you know, there's room for lots of things, that this is the, uh, this is the church age, the early church as it progresses down through time. You take the uh, church in, the, in Acts as it started, there was power. The Holy Spirit had came and they were ready to conquer. And they, were, they did. They went out and the church started. And nothing could stop it. And that's what's pictured here in the white horse going out. He had a crown. He was given to, uh, it says, went forth conquering and to conquer. White is one of color of uh, you know, purity, of righteousness. And that is just the church moving out through. The next horse is a red horse. And if you take the church age, you have great persecution coming in a physical way where our forefathers suffered. And many people were killed. We talked about those martyrs, people that were killed. And the red horse power was given to them that sat there on to take peace from the earth that they should kill one another. And that's the time frame of when the church suffered that. The martyr's mirror, all those uh, just... And for me personally, they're hard to read. You don't want to identify with them, and yet we need to. We need to recognize that people suffered and died for the cause of Christ. 
But then the third horse is the black one. And that is famine. Like the bread's not available. And, and you just, all you have to do is take the cam flyer that comes in the mail and it's nation after nation that is just barely making it. I mean, it, it is globally, there's a lot of hunger. And people work all day for barely a meal. They also compare this to the spiritual famine that takes place. Where, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but the church starts, you are in victory, and you go through, and you survive the persecution, the things that come along, and then the next thing comes is you just start fizzling out a little bit. It's just what happens with churches as it goes along. And the last horse, you know, it's one of death. Is the church dead yet? No. Church is alive. We have churches that are in the midst of intense persecution around the globe. And they're thriving and they're, they're you know, God's spirit's with them and things are, things are uh, you know, lives are being changed and people are committed to Christ. And yet you look around here and do you say, are churches dying? Well, yeah, they are. Churches are fizzling out. So there's, there's just room in a lot of ways to take some of this, how it would be. In the ver- end of verse 8, it says, And power was given over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. I'm not quite sure how to fit all that in there. But nonetheless, some of this I think we're seeing right here today. We're living in some of these times here of what, um, what John was, was witnessing. And here's where I wrote down about, Will the end of end of the earth or the end of time be a place that people know about God but are not willing to serve him there's my note that I had talked about earlier so just a couple uh things that that one was one about the horses um the rest of the seals are you know it's hard to say exactly what they are um you can take them at face value I think that's fine but the one thing I thought of was about uh these people being afraid of the wrath of God. And I pondered that, and I want to ask you, are you afraid of the wrath of God? I kind of got mixed feelings on that. Like, yeah, I am, but yet, no, I'm not. Okay, so here's what I want to challenge you. No, we do not need to be afraid of the wrath of God. Because you commit your life to him, you repent of your deeds, your evil ways, you forsake them, you turn, you go the other way, and God seals you at the end. I won't say now yet, but at some point you will be sealed and with God. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. And yet I come to church on Sunday mornings thinking, I fear if... I am a spiritually lazy person. And I don't know how the wrath of God fits into all that. When we just become complacent, humdrum, take my next step forward because that's all I know to do. Maybe there, maybe God will have, or maybe we should fear some of God's wrath if, if that's the way it is. So... That's a personal question for you. Are you afraid of the wrath of God? I can state no, brothers. I am not afraid of the wrath of God. 
I can say amen to that. Now, we are in a battle, and we do fight working in his kingdom day in and day out. Okay, uh, one other, couple other points here yet, hopefully before too long. Um, I couldn't help, uh, okay, so chapter 7 starts, it talks about the four uh, angels holding the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. So you got four angels, four corners, and four winds. So lots of fours. And you remember four is the number for creation or earth, I think. Every time I see the word wind, I'm always intrigued because of spirit. Wind and spirits, they, they just go together. And I thought, well, yeah, this is, this is angels holding back spirits. Uh, kind of ran into problems because what spirits are they holding? <laughs> are they the spirit of God? You know, there's different spirits of God, the sevenfold spirit they talk about. Are the angels holding back four of them? No, four is not necessarily a number that represents uh, God. It's, it's got to be something else. Um, and I don't really know. But I, I kind of think there will be, and my mind kept going enough to be, uh, how do I have it down here, um, about the angels holding back. Do you think that at some point in time, I'm just kind of phrasing it here, that God's spirit will actually be held back, and I don't, I don't have it maybe studying, but that his spirit will not go on the earth anymore. Now throw that out as a question. I don't know if there's scripture to back that up or not. But when it talks about these winds, and so I searched wind, and it doesn't show up anymore. It just kind of gives it here, and you don't really hear much else about it. And so I got to thinking about spirits, and it, and it almost made more sense to think about these angels um, can release uh spirits of satan and then we get into whether satan's bound or you know how, how he can work and whatnot and i don't know on that what it is and if you want to go back to plain basic and simple just take it as wind on the earth and that saves you a lot of trouble you can just back up and say well it's just the wind but ephesians four 14, i'll quote you that that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. It's just hard for me to not mix up some of that spirits and doctrines with this wind that's here that these angels are holding. I don't have a clear picture for you on that, but that's definitely one thing that came out through. And now probably the last thing that uh, really, I guess, brought out who God really is. And if you were all Bible whizzes and knew your Bible really, really good, you would have said, wait, all those tribes of Israel, there's one missing. How many of you know that there's a tribe missing? Brenda knew it here. Some of you knew it. We're not sure why, the, the, just, you know, the Bible scholars, they don't know why the tribe of Dan is not listed. They, I mean, you, we can guess, we can assume. But you take the children of Israel, you say, God would keep all them. And he listed them all before, but you get to Revelation and all of a sudden, tribe of Dan, nowhere to be found. 
must be a reason. Yes, there is. I'll try to give it to you really quick. If you go back to Judges, I'm not going to read, but Judges 17 and 18 talk about the tribe of Dan, how they forsook God and worshipped idols. And as I thought of the Sunday school lesson, I thought, well, I don't want to repeat the Sunday school lesson, but that's what happened. They, and, the, and if you want something to do this afternoon, read. Judges 17, 18, and not, put 19 in there too. That's some of the most uncomprehensible stuff there where the wife, or the concubine of this man, cut this woman to pieces and sent her throughout all the Israel and saying, it's hard for me to know exactly what, but there was um, just the horribleness of it. Anyway, I started talking about something I don't know 100% about. The tribe of Dan, in my quick looking at it, was is that they... How can, you, how can you take idols and think that God is going to be pleased with it? They would take these idols to their house. There's this priest that comes along, and he is of the tribe of Levi. And this man, Micah, says, great, this is just what I need. I need this man. He's a Levite. He's a priest. Come into my house and do the things that are needed for me, and God will bless me for it. He'll even be okay with my shrine that I have set up with my idols. Uh, Micah had a place that he worshipped idols. And Micah just goes, the Lord's going to be okay with this. It's just it's good. I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to. To me, brother, I, that gets too close to the hypocritical lifestyle that I think I'm living sometimes right on the edge and when I asked a brother, I said, is there idolatry in the church? He says, absolutely there's idolatry in the church. But I want to say, well, I don't have any. and you, None of you do either. Well, that's the deception of it then, that you've got to be careful and watch out for it. Lest your tribe be removed from those sealed of the 144,000. There will be people that stand before God. thinking they're okay. We did everything right the way God said. And God says their heart was far from me. They weren't even close to what I wanted them to be. Tribe of Dan is not in here. That was what I wanted to just mention quick. I was not aware of that. Just in studying it came about. So very quickly here, uh, chapter 7.15. May this all be our desire. I'll just read it again here in closing, and then we'll have the benediction. It says in chapter 7, verse 15, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. We're there with the throne, and God dwells with us, a place that we all want to be. Communion, fellowship, praise, no enemy. We're not there yet. This is where we are today. We're still in the battle. Um, 
And so may each of us all be wanting to be in that. Here it talks about serving him, you know, day and night in his temple. Uh, that's probably in a future sense, you know, something later. But I take it that we can be serving God in his temple today where we live. So that is chapter 6 and 7 of Revelation that all I have. You are more free to dig into more if you have questions. Um, there's lots of resources out there. And if nothing else, it is the revealing of God. And I will say God is in in a general overview way in my Christian life. I am it's the Lord is revealing himself to me in, in studying this of, of who he is. And I trust and hope that all of you are are having that happen in, in your lives. So let's stand for a benediction. <clears throat>